When we started our church, we, we started going through some basic uh, messages, teachings on how to build your own personal relationship with the Lord. We understood what it would take for us as a church struggling in these times of the Laodicean church period and, and uh, what it would take for us to uh, really uh, do a work for God in these last days. And we knew that any church, no matter where it is, who it is, will only be as strong as its weakest link. So we talked about all of us together focusing on building that one-on-one relationship with the Lord. And uh, we went through uh, just about a year of going through all kinds of different concepts, working it from every angle that you would understand and see how to build a church in these last days, how to build your own life. Uh, We've talked about the family and uh, all of those aspects. And then we started going into the Bible itself. And we wanted to, not only for you, but for our future generations, uh, two or three years from now as new people come into our church uh, that want to learn the Bible, we started a study of going through each book of the Bible, uh, book by book, giving you an understandable history of that book, an understandable concept of how it fits into your life, how it fits into prophetic things. And we have been simply coming through these books every week, one a week, and putting together a, um, when it's all finished and said and done, we will uh, you know, put them in an album with 66 tapes in it, like the Bible has 66 books, and it'll be you know, a study that you can take that when you're finished, you will, you will have a pretty good understanding how the Bible goes together and certainly enough of the material that you can begin to, uh, you know, put the Word of God in the proper place that it needs to be. You know, one of the things that I found that, that what people struggle with when they try to learn the Bible, and this is so true, I find that people want to read the Bible and they want to learn the Bible. But the problem is when they start to read, they don't know what they're looking for. They don't know how to read it. I mean, you can read it, but the events, I'll be honest with you, get very boring very quickly if you don't understand the context of everything that you're looking at. And the Bible is a book that God intended to be a a, a lively book. It's a living book. And there's nothing that gives life to the Bible better than showing you the way God wanted it to be studied and wanted it to be laid out as, as you come through the Bible. And last week, you remember, we finished up the book of Solomon. And with that book, uh, we finished up the second section of the Old Testament. And today, we're going to move into the third and final section of the Old Testament, and we're going to uh, begin a study of the prophets. Now, uh, let's ask God's blessing this morning as we come to His Word. Father, we do thank You and praise You for the Lord Jesus. We love You so much. Thank You for all that You do for us. We pray now, Lord, that you'll open our hearts, open our eyes. We thank you for those that are here today. May the Word of God uh, speak to our hearts. We pray for those that are sick today, those that are afflicted, those that are traveling. And, Lord, we, uh, we just pray that, uh, that you'll be with them, take care of them. And, Lord, we pray you'll bring us back, uh, Lord, together with us as our family here in Christ. And we'll thank you and praise you now for the time in the Word and the things that your Spirit gives us. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it, amen. Now, you remember that as we were coming through the Bible, I told you that the Old Testament breaks down into three compartments, three different uh, breakdowns or three different sections. We talked about the historical section. We came through that when we started in Genesis and we come up through the book of Esther. And that portion of the Old Testament really deals with a historical side of, of the Bible. Then we started five books 
uh, called the wisdom books. Sometimes they're called the poetical books, but they're certainly the wisdom books. And we showed you how that the wisdom books are the baseline of truth in the Bible. Everything else in the Bible comes back to those five wisdom books. We showed you how that one represents the suffering of Christ, one represents the mind of God, one represents the mind of the Spirit, one represents the mind of Christ. We went through and showed you how those books really lay themselves out as the ultimate of wisdom that you and I need to have, not only to build a church in this day and age, but to survive as Christians. And now today we're going to enter into the third part. And the third part will deal with us uh, from uh, Isaiah to Malachi. The first part was Genesis to Esther. The second part was Job the Song of Solomon. And now the third part is Ezra to Malachi. This section is called the Prophets. In section number one, the historical section, we saw the establishment, the formulation of the nation of Israel. We saw God calling Abraham out of the earth of the Chaldees and bringing him to a land that God had promised. We saw God say to him that, I'm going to make your seed like the stars of heaven. And then we began to see that promise fulfilled as God took the nation of Israel down into Egypt. He brought them out of Egypt by a mighty hand, brought them for the 40 years of wandering, and then brought them into the promised land in the book of Joshua. We saw how that through Joshua the land was conquered, the land was colonized. We saw in the book of Judges how that the, the nation of Israel fell back into apostasy under the times of the Judges. And then we came into the, the establishment of the kingdom of heaven, the theme of the Bible. We came into the establishment of the kingdom of heaven on this earth, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And we talked about how that the greatest period of time in the history of the Old Testament, and by the way, this is where most of your wisdom books are written during this period of time, uh, we find that the greatest period of time for the nation of Israel is under David and Solomon. And we find at that particular point there is no greater nation on the face of this planet than the nation that God has established, His people, to represent Him, the nation of Israel. But then we see that the devil gets in the details. And we see that the nation of Israel goes into apostasy. We see them begin to decline as a nation. And then we see them going into captivity uh, at the end of Second Chronicles chapter 36. And then we have the wisdom books. The wisdom books are five books of the Bible that showed Israel what they needed to do to get back to God. It shows you and I the wisdom that we need to stay with God. And they're incredible books as we saw as we came through them. And then we come to the prophets. The prophets are men who God sends to the nation of Israel to preach through uh, to them and bring them back to God. Now all this is dealing with the kingdom of heaven. And I want to explain to you in a little detail before we start to come through the book of Isaiah how this, these books of the prophets really work. Remember now, when we started to study this thing and we came through it, I showed you how that the, the captivity, the times of the Gentiles, that great line that draw, God drew in the sand at Second Chronicles chapter 36, where He ended Israel's reign and turned this world over to the Gentile nations. We today are still living in the times of the Gentiles. We will be living into the times of the Gentiles until the rapture of the church. When the rapture takes place, God then turns His attention back to the nation of Israel, and then at the end of the tribulation period with the second coming of Christ, He restores the nation of Israel to where uh, He wants them to be. But right now, God, as we've already seen, has turned His back on the nation of Israel. He's hid Himself from them because of their deep apostasy, because of their forsaking God, and God now is calling out a Gentile bride 
you and me, a Gentile bride for his son. We talked about that in the book of Song of Solomon last week. But when it comes to the prophets, these are men that God sends to the nation of Israel when they begin to forsake God. You see the prophets showing up in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, and 2 Chronicles. When the nation of Israel goes into apostasy, God sends them men. And those men take the word of God and preach to the leaders and the nation of Israel about their apostasy. And I want to tell you, it was a tough job. Now, the prophets come in two forms. We call them in theological circles the major prophets and the minor prophets. Now, that has led people to think that the major prophets had more to say than the minor prophets that maybe the major prophets were more important books than the minor prophets. No, those terms have to deal with the size of the books. The major prophets are books like Isaiah, books like Ezekiel, books like uh, Jeremiah. They run uh, 50-some chapters. In fact, Isaiah runs 66 chapters. It's the longest of the prophets. The minor prophets would be uh, Micaiah, Hosea, uh, Obadiah. Sometimes they only have one chapter. Sometimes they have four. Sometimes they have five. But they're smaller in content, not in quality. In fact, it takes me a while to get through the book of Isaiah because I'm dealing with 66 chapters. And I know what's on your mind if you're any kind of human nature about you. You're looking ahead in your Bible and say, wow, he preaches a long time on these. But boy, when we get to Micah, when we get to Amos, there are only three chapters, two chapters. It's going to be a short sermon. Don't bet on it. Don't bet on it. There's more in those little books than I'll tell you what you could spend the rest of your life going through. Now these prophets, their job, as I said, was very tough. They faced much opposition. Many times they stood alone against great persecution. In fact, you find within the Kings and Chronicles themselves how that they are up against people like Ahab, Jezebel, Elijah, Elisha. Oh, Micaiah, who is one of my favorite characters in the Bible that we talked about when he said, up against Ahab, as the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. It was Elijah who lost faith and ran from God because it was Ahab that was trying to kill him and Jezebel. You find that these men had very tough jobs to do. They weren't very popular. They're a lot like a man that believes the Bible today, that preaches the Word of God today in a world of apostasy that hates God and hates the Word of God and tries to eradicate everything about God in this godless society that we live in. Many of them God called to be object lessons for the nation of Israel, which was not the easiest thing to do in the world. Hosea was told to take a wife of whoredoms. That's against the violation of the Old Testament law. But he was told to take a wife of whoredoms because Israel was committing whoredoms against God. Jeremiah, the only man in the Bible, commanded not to marry. And people read the book of Jeremiah and they think, well, that's a strange thing. Why did God tell him not to marry? Well, there's a reason for it. We'll study when we come to the book of Jeremiah. Ezekiel was told not to cry at his wife's death. All these things seem strange. Now, the book of Isaiah is one of those books. Isaiah... His commission is he's told to walk naked three years preaching. Maybe you didn't hear me. I said his commission was to walk three years preaching naked. Boy, I'm glad I'm in the New Testament. <clears throat> Somebody said, why would God do that? Why would God tell a man, and he tells him that over there in chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. He says, take your clothes off, get naked, and for three years. I want you to walk up and down the nation of Israel 
and I want you to preach to them. Now, the scholars, scholars always have a tough time with what the Bible says. They just can't conceive that God would, would, would have somebody walk naked. They can't see what's really going on here. And every commentary you will find, and I've got a five-foot shelf of them at home, every commentator you find will kind of cut God some slack and try to help Isaiah out and said, well, he really didn't mean naked. He was in his underwear. Well, I'm going to tell you something right now. He was naked. You know why he was naked? Because his nakedness was a picture of the nakedness of the sin of the nation of Israel. And when God looked at the nation of Israel, he didn't see a wicked nation in underwear. When God saw the nation of Israel, he saw a wicked nation in the nakedness of their sin. Now, there's a great lesson in that because God's people don't like the concept of somebody being naked. And the nation of Israel was naked before God in their sinfulness, and God sent them a naked preacher to preach to them, and the object lesson was, hey, my nakedness is an illustration of your nakedness before God. And the scholars don't like it, so they try to cover it up. In the New Testament, my Bible says, is the day where God's people is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and they're going to be naked because of their sin before God. We don't like that either. So we take all of those verses out and all we try to do is just cover up our own nakedness when the Bible tells us so clearly and plainly just that Israel was naked before God in the Old Testament, the Laodicean church who thinks itself puffed up, who thinks itself clothed with beautiful stuff is wretched, miserable, and naked before God. We see some great parallels here between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Isaiah is one of those major prophets in fact, as I said, 66 chapters in this book, the longest, the longest of the prophets. He writes to the two southern tribes of Judah right before the exile. Remember now, we knew that the exile, some of these books will be before the exile. Some of these books will be during the exile. That's the captivity when Shennacherib and Nebuchadnezzar come down and take them into captivity. Some of these prophets will write after the exile. Now, what I'm going to try to show you here is I'm going to try to show you how this book goes together historically, doctrinally, and, and inspirationally. And that's going to be a tough task because we're dealing with a lot of material here, but I'm going to try to make it as brief as I can, as exciting as I can, and yet whet your appetite that you'll want more. Because as far as I am concerned, the excitement of the Word of God and you learning the Word of God, uh, if I can just whet your appetite into wanting to see more, then you on your own initiative will study the Bible. Now, doctrinally, let's talk about doctrinally first, because the doctrinal application is how this book fits into the end times. It's how, how this book fits into the theme of the Bible, the second coming of Christ. Now, as you start to come through here, you're going to find uh, that the whole book doctrinally will deal with the second coming of Christ, the tribulation period, and the millennium. You visitors got a little bookmark today. It's more than just a little bookmark. We put it together because on the back of it, if you look at it, it has all the key words that when you're reading through your Bible, all the key words that will denote for you the context of what you're reading. And you can go through them. They're self-explanatory in the back. We've got some other stuff back there to study. And, uh, but as you're coming through the book of Isaiah, somebody says to me, Bob, how do you know the book of Isaiah is dealing with the second coming of Christ? Well, here's how you know. On the back of your little bookmark here, it talks about the 
concept of the second coming of Christ. And it gives a number of words, but the first three words are that day, the day, the day of the Lord. I told you that whenever you find those words, the context will be the second coming of Christ. Now here's a little study guide for you. The next time you want to study a book of the prophets and you want to find out, whether it's a major prophet or a minor prophet, and you want to find out what it's about, go get you a strong concordance. People ask me all the time, what kind of concordance? Get a strong. Somebody said, well, there's a concordance out called a young concordance. Strong concordance for strong Christians, young concordance for young Christians. I've just made that up. There's nothing to do with it. I use a Strong's. Now, here's what you do. Open up Isaiah, or excuse me, go in that concordance and find the word day. Take your handy-dandy little bookmarker here that will be worth well over a million dollars after my death. <laughs> start up at the top of that thing and just start coming down and count how many times the word day shows up in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah has 66 chapters. You know how I know the book of Isaiah doctrine is the second coming of Christ? You know how I know that? You know how I know that? 91 times the day, that day, the day of the Lord, found in the book of Isaiah. 91 times in 66 chapters. It doesn't take a Ph.D. in Greek or Hebrew, or it doesn't take a lead weight to fall on you know that when you've got something showing up 91 times in 66 chapters, what you're dealing with, you are dealing with the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you start to understand that, you'll realize that that's what this book is about. And let me just say this, wherever you got the second coming, the tribulation, the millennium, will not be far behind. They'll be in the context around it. And so it begins to set the pattern. That's what you want to look for doctrinally when you start to come through the book of Isaiah. Now you might as well get this set in your mind too. The book of Isaiah, as all the books of the prophets, really as all the Bible, but you really see it in the prophets, is the most negative books in the Bible. There isn't anything good happening in the prophets. You know why? Because there isn't anything good happening to the nation of Israel during this time. These books are all negative. They talk about destruction. They talk about judgment. They talk about calamity. They talk about death. They talk about suffering. They talk about total devastation. They talk about everything that takes place in the nation of Israel during this time, historically, because of what's going on as Israel is forsaking, forsaking God historically at that time, but it's all a future picture about that day when God deals with the nation of Israel in the tribulation period, which is going to start any minute now, and off we go. So with that in mind, let's begin to go through a general overview of the context. I wish I had time to go through this. We're going to go through it once doctrinally, then I'm going to come back and bring it through inspirationally, and then I'm going to show you a few little short things, and, and we'll be on our way today. But let me give you a, just a general overview how you can do this. And by the way, if your visitors here this morning, if you don't want to take notes or you can't take notes or you can't keep up, don't be frustrated with me. I'm giving you an absolutely free CD this morning. My son-in-law back there, Jason, he's the good-looking one between the two ugly guys on the end. He'll get it for you before you leave. And you can have one of those because I want you to be able to just go take this home and take it in your own time. And then I'm going to say this. If you're out there someplace and you have a question about the Bible anytime, you can call me. Please don't reverse the charges from Montana. No, I'm just kidding. You can call me. Call me. 
And I'll be glad to help you with the Bible any way that I can because that's what it's all about. Okay, here we go. Now, chapter 1 through chapter 8, let's just put it in a general category here. They all deal with the tribulation, the second coming, and God's judgment. You're going to find that day over and over again. You're going to find the, uh, the tribulation period. You're going to try the things that are happening, taking over. It's incredible, uh, eight chapters. You're going to find it over and over and over again. In fact, in chapter 9, then, we move into the great chapter on the millennium. Chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, are probably the two greatest verses in all of the Bible that shows you about eternity. When Revelation chapter 22 shows up and we move out into eternity, and he talks about the new heavens and the new earth, and he suddenly closes it down and says the end and doesn't go any farther, then you go back to Isaiah chapter 9, because Isaiah chapter 9 says, verse 5, 6 and 7, Of the increase of his governing peace there shall be no end, to the throne of David, to order it, to establish it henceforth, even forever. It talks about eternity and all the great things that are going to go on with the establishment of God's government at the second coming of Christ, which goes out into eternity. In chapter 10, 11, and 12, and 13, you have the Antichrist kingdom versus Christ's kingdom. In chapter 14, you have a very key chapter, probably one of the most key chapters in all of the Bible. Because in chapter 14, it says in verse 4, take up a proverb against the king of Babylon. Now, this is a key chapter for a number of reasons. It shows you a number of crucial things you have to see if you're ever going to put your Bible together. First of all, it's a great chapter that shows you about the fall of Satan. We know from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, something transpired. Something happened. God creates it, then it's in chaos. It's Isaiah chapter 14 along with Ezekiel chapter 28 that puts the details in between. Revelation chapter 12 and 13 talks about Satan falling. And when you come to this great chapter, this is the chapter that shows you how he fell. It is the great, one of the great chapters in the Bible on the fall of Satan. And it opens up a great truth. And it's something that you have to see in the Bible. Like I said, it'll open up incredible avenues of learning and understanding for you. Because you see in this chapter how God begins to address he begins to address the person of Satan through a human king on this earth. Well, that's a cricket. That, is that why you moved, honey? Why didn't you just stomp it? Oh, it's a Baptist cricket. Don't kill it. It's got a little name tag. It says Jimmy. Anyway, here, I'll sit down and you take over, because you're taking the show anyhow. Here we go. All right, now, when you come to this chapter, you see a great concept. You see the concept that the devil begins to, uh, God begins to address the devil through actual kings on this earth. He talks about, take up a proverb against the king of Babylon. Another place, he talks about the Assyrian, that would be Shennacherib. He talks about Pharaoh. And here, as I said, he talks about the king of Babylon. There's a place where he talks about the king of Persia. And when you begin to read the passages, the king of Persia, the king of Babylon here, the Assyrian and Pharaoh, none of them did anything that he's talking about. In fact, you step way out beyond historically. And boy, when you come into Isaiah chapter 14, you now are dealing with something that took place in the garden of God back in Genesis. You're way outside that. And he calls, he calls the king of Babylon 
Oh, Lucifer! Clearly showing you a great truth and a truth you must see if you're ever going to understand what God is doing down through history. And that is simply this. That once the times of the Gentiles came into being, once God in 2 Chronicles chapter 36 ended the reign of the nation of Israel temporarily and instituted the times of the Gentiles, He gave this world over to Gentile rule. In the book of Daniel, Babylon, then Persia, then Greece, then Rome. And you're going to find that the reason why the Lord addresses the devil through these nations is because it's through these nations that the devil is ruling the world during this period of time. He's showing you an incredible truth. He's showing you something about history that will change your whole perspective on history. He's showing you how the devil runs this world through the Gentile kings. For chapter 14 is not a reference of the king of Babylon that we all know, but rather the devil himself who is in the king of Babylon running the world from the throne of Babylon, which goes back to the first Gentile kingdom in Genesis chapter 10, and by the way, brings us right to where we're at today with bin Baghdad, which is where Babylon is, with a guy by the name of Saddam Hussein who used to hold seances with Nebuchadnezzar. Now you go figure it out where this thing is showing you. You know, if Dan Rather and CBS and ABC could get that truth, they'd really have something to say in the 6 o'clock news. But they won't. Now in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, here's another great concept. He says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, the son of the morning? This is very important. Because all the new Bibles take the son of the morning and change it to the morning star. The morning star is Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 2, verse 28. Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. Then there's a footnote down in the bottom of these Bibles that says, this isn't really Satan, it's really the Lord Jesus Christ. And what you've got, what kind of mind is behind any Bible that would take a clear reference to Christ, or to the devil, take it out, put change the name, put Christ in, and then tell you who are reading your Bible that the greatest chapter on the devil isn't the devil after all. It's Christ. I'll tell you why somebody would do that, because there's one coming who wants to take the place of Christ. And when he shows up, he wants a bunch of stupid God's people Christians who don't know their Bibles to believe that it is Christ. It's incredible. And in chapter 14, verse 13, it shows you another great truth. It shows you the devil's basic problem will be man's basic problem. You know what you got in chapter 14, verse 13? You got the five eyes. Five eyes. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. You know what the biggest problem you and I have got as God's people? It's the same problem the devil had. Your will over God's will. And yet I find this is very interesting. Oh, we don't have time to get into this this morning. But he says, I will ascend two times. The only time you find the word ascend used in the Bible is with the Lord Jesus Christ because the word ascend means that somebody came out of the dead on their own by their own power and then went up to heaven. And that's what the devil wants. He wants to be God. And that's why the last I will is I will be like the most high God. And you know what? That's how it starts in your life and my life. We start to get puffed up in pride. We start to say, I will arise, I will ascend, I will this, I will that. I'll set my seat. And the bottom line, when our pride gets so puffed up, the bottom line is when we become so full of ourselves, we come to the same place the devil came when we say to ourselves, you know what, I want to be like God. I want to do those things. And that's where our downfall is. Oh, chapter 14 is in a great chapter. Then chapter 15 through 26, again, tribulation, second coming. And the concept that day all through it. 
In chapter 27, verse 1, you have one of the greatest defining chapters in all of the Bible on the devil. It says in 27.1, In that day the Lord with his sore and great strong sword shall punish Leviathan the piercing serpent, even Leviathan that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. We find a word popping up here, the word Leviathan. What word Leviathan? We'll find that word over in Job chapter 40 and chapter 41. And that Leviathan is defined for us in Revelation chapter 3 as the serpent which is defined for us in, Genesis, uh, in Revelation chapter 13 as the dragon, which we find the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. You know what you've got here? You've got the defining chain of references that connects the devil from Genesis to Revelation. He's the serpent in Genesis 3, he's Leviathan in Job chapter 40, and he's the dragon in Revelation chapter 12 and 13, and he's all three of them in Isaiah chapter 27. And you've got everything that you need to connect from Genesis to Revelation. In spite of the fact, if you get a new modern translation and go to Isaiah, uh, Job chapter 40 and 41, Leviathan would be a crocodile or an elephant. Anything but the devil. And that's not all. When you come to Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1, the NIV, that great masterpiece today, down in the footnote, tells you that this story about Leviathan and about the serpent and about the dragon being the devil is just a Canaanite myth. Write in your footnotes. Write in your footnotes. Oh, I'm telling you, you don't have to study the book of Isaiah very long to find out that the devil is trying to hide who he is. He doesn't want you to figure him out because he doesn't want you to find out what he's doing because he wants to trap you right in the sins where you're at and do in your life exactly what God doesn't want you to do. Oh, it's incredible. Chapter 28 through chapter 40. Again, back to the tribulation. Deals with the captivity and the second coming of Christ. Chapter 41 through chapter 49. Now here's some good ones for you. Nine chapters in the book of Isaiah that deal with God as the most supreme being in all the universe. There are no greater chapters anywhere, anywhere in the Bible. There may be other chapters or verses that go along with this, but if you want nine consecutive chapters where it is just bang, 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 that God is the only God. There is no other gods. Evolution's a farce. Everything other than God's Word. And it's just the supreme being of God ruling this universe. You want chapter 41 through chapter 49. And you'll come away with a the concept, there are no other gods. Then in chapter 50 through chapter 59, you find God judging the nation of Israel during the tribulation period. In chapter 60 through chapter 62, you find the restoration of the nation of Israel. And in chapter 63 and 64, you find the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in chapter 65, 66, millennium out into eternity. And that's a basic overview. And you will find, as I said, 91 times that day throughout those 66 chapters. You'll find reference to the tribulation period. And along with that, you'll find some great doctrinal teachings on Satan, on the restoration of Israel, on Lucifer, on the son of the Moor, all those things that you need to know and understand in time from the book of Isaiah from a doctrinal standpoint. Now, obviously, man, I mean, my... Uh, I taught the book of Isaiah one time uh, years ago, and it took me something like a year going through it three hours a week. I mean, there's just so much material. So all I can do today is to give you an overview to show you what's in that book so when you begin to read it, you have some sense of purpose in what you're looking for. Now, 
We're going to come back around, look at it from a practical standpoint. Remember now, the doctrinal standpoint will always point you to the end times, the second coming of Christ, the millennium. It will always point you to the theme of the Bible, the second coming of Christ. The historical will always point you to the actual events that took place. And the book of Isaiah takes place during Kings and Chronicles historically. And then we come to the practical side of things. And in the practical side of things, you find great everyday concepts, everyday verses, everyday great truths that are for your edification of life. And let me just remind you of something about the Bible, and I know that most of you know this is true, if not all of you, but let me just say this. You remember this about the Bible. You remember that, that all the Bible is written for you, but not all the Bible is written to you. And that's why you've got to be careful just taking everything you read in the Bible and applying it directly to you. You know from our introduction study, there are three groups of people that are addressed in the Bible. The Gentiles, the nation of Israel, and the church. Where heresy comes in, in Christianity, is where somebody who doesn't know how to rightly divide the word of truth, as the Bible says in the book of Timothy, begins to take something written to the Jew and apply it to himself, or to the Gentiles and apply it to himself, or vice versa. That's why it's so important to understand how the Bible lays itself out. And that's our job, my job, is to help you with that. And uh, when you look at this book from a practical standpoint, you realize that when you come into places like Isaiah chapter 14, where it talks about Lucifer, bright sun in the morning, now that's not written directly to you. That's my point. I mean, you're not going to take that verse and put it on your refrigerator. That verse shows you what God is doing. That verse is an informational verse that is showing you something about the Bible that is not directly to you, but it is for you. But all at the same time, there's verses in this book, there's concepts in this book that are directly to you. That you can put them on your refrigerator. You can put them into your heart. You can live by them. I mean, I have a general knowledge in my mind that I can walk through Genesis chapter 1, Ezekiel chapter 28, Isaiah chapter 14, Revelation chapter 12, Revelation chapter 13, Isaiah chapter 27, and I can spew and spit out facts and figures about the devil and all he's doing and the whole fall of Satan, and I need to know that. But I'll be honest with you, that doesn't edify me to tomorrow when i got to face all the things out there, or you do. That is not going to help you that much as something that you need to know, but it's not something that's going to really edify you to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not saying it isn't important. I'm not saying it won't encourage you. I'm just saying there are certain things in the Bible that God just writes with your name on them and says, here, this is for you. That's what I'm talking about. And the book of Isaiah is filled with it. Let's look at some of them. I think one of the greatest ones about salvation. You know what? Here again, the thing that's always on God's heart and on mine is salvation. And he sums in chapter 1, verse 18, he says this. And this is a great verse. He says, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Now that's a great verse. You know what that verse shows me? That verse shows me that God is not as hard-nosed about some things as people like to make Him out to be. Now I know this. I know that God holds the line. And I know God says, Narrow is the way, you know, and broad is the path to destruction. I understand all that. But you get the idea by lots of preachers today that it's either God's way or the highway. 
And you know what? That isn't exactly true because God will reason with you. God wants you saved so desperately. God wants you in His kingdom so desperately that He's not going to just... You know what the truth of the matter is? And I'm not saying God doesn't do this in, time, in some cases, but, I, but here's the, the truth of the matter is the Bible says He's the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. There is some point in every man and woman's life where God lights them. And the truth of the matter is, if you reject it at that point, God doesn't, is not under any obligation any farther to give you any more light. He could slam the door right there and say, you had your chance, that's it. You see, God would have every right to do that. But the Bible says, for God so loved the world, you see. The Bible says that he, even though he can do that, and he would be justified to do that, he won't do that. God's Spirit will take the rebuke and the ridicule of unsaved people spitting in his face over and over and over again because the Bible says, come, let us reason together. God wants to take you to heaven. God doesn't want anybody. In fact, the Bible says in the book of Matthew, hell was never prepared for you and for me. Hell was never prepared for lost men. Hell was prepared for the devil and his angels because God wants to reason with man. That man will let God save him. Oh, what an incredible verse. It shows me as the believer what a great loving God I have. It sets the pattern for me as a parent. That you don't want to be just hard, fast with your kids. You want to be able to reason with them. But you have to build a baseline of truth for that reasoning to be effective. Oh, and that's what God does. He says, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. God wants to reason with us. He wants to, re- he's, he wants to, he loves us. He, he will put up. He will never turn his back on us. He will never, never, never shut the door of understanding. If there's any man or woman on the planet today that can't get anything from God that seemingly says, God has shut the door and God won't speak to me anymore, I got news for you right now. It isn't God on the other end shutting the door. It's the fact that you've shut the door. You've seared your conscience and your conscience won't let God in. Why, in Revelation, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And here he says, Let us reason together. God wants to reason about your soul. He wants to reason with you about your soul. That's a great verse. Then in chapter 5, verse 20, and I'm just going to randomly pick some for you here that I, that are, to me, when you start studying, and I'm sure you'll find, you'll find some more for you. And I know I could give you 120 more, but we don't have time for that. We're just going to do 119 of them today. Chapter 5, verse 20. Oh, here's a good one. Woe unto them that call evil good and, go- and, uh, and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You know what you've got there? You've got the exact picture of what's wrong with the United States of America in this world today. We've changed the value system. We call evil good and good evil. That's the liberal, ter- that's the liberal mindset. That's the humanistic mindset. Now, you know me, and you know I've said it before, and we talked about it a little bit Thursday night. I'm not political. I'm really not. I'm not a Democrat or Republican. I'm really not. I don't care either way. Somebody asked me who I'm vote for. I don't, I'm going to vote for the guy that's going to bring the Antichrist in and get the rapture going and get me out of here as quick as I can. That's who I want in power. This idea, well, we're going to prolong this thing, not me, boy. I read the last prayer in the Bible, and I know what it said. Even, come, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I believe what I read. And I'm telling you right now, I don't care one way or the other. But let me just tell you something. 
And you better mark this down because you are living in times that are most unbelievable, interesting times on the, on, the, on the history of this planet. The only other time that I know it could be as exciting is for us to all be standing out there about 5.30 around that tomb holding hands, singing Kumbaya, waiting for him to come out of that tomb. That would have been exciting. But we weren't there. So we're going to stand around a circle and sing Kumbaya for his second coming. Because I'm telling you, my friend, he's coming. And what you're seeing in this world today is everything is set up for him coming. Now, you got, we got some elections coming up here. And you know what? There's more to these elections than this who wins. Some people like Kerry. Some people like Bush. And as far as I'm concerned, you've got to be a crook one to be a politician anyhow. I don't, it's just a matter of which one's the less of a crook. Now, I like Bush for his good values. I don't like Kerry. But I, you know what? I don't care either way. It doesn't make any difference to me. I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. I'm a Christian. I want God for president is who I want. See, that's where I'm at. In fact, when I go in to vote, I'm just going to write God on it and punch it in there and go on home. Get me a Big Mac and a Big Fry and a supersize it and be on my way. But I'm telling you, there's more going on. I didn't mean that, Adrian. I won't get a Big Mac and all that fat food stuff. I'm like, Ugh. my trainer's sitting back there and I'm talking about eating. Ugh. I'm going to get some asparagus and I'm going to, get, you know, I'm going to go home. Now, I'm telling you, there's an election coming up, and everybody sees Bush or here. And I'm telling you, that's not what it is. What this election is, and you saw it last time, and I'm telling you right now, and mark my words down, you're at the crossroads of a defining of a nation. You all saw it last election. The election before that wasn't that close. Before that, there were landslides, one way or the other. The last time when, when those two guys, or when uh, they tried to get in there, they, and with Gore and Bush, it was so close that they couldn't even decide with election. The Supreme Court had to come up. Now, somebody said, well, that's it. we lost. I don't care about who lost or who won. I'm saying this. This nation is right there where it is divided with half have this mentality right here, and the other half have some kind of standards that are left, and one of these days... Probably this election, if not this election, certainly the next one. That balance is going to tip. Up to this point, it's been the conservative values that have held it. But I'm telling you, if you watched the debate last week or last Friday night, I don't care what anybody said. I don't care what anybody accused anybody else of doing. I know they both got their downfall. What came out of that debate was simply this. You got a rank liberal on this side and you got a conservative on this side and so is the nation. And I'm telling you, it's flip-flop back and forth. You've had Democrats, then Republicans. And, it, and the decency has stayed. Not anymore. This country is pagan. This country has come to the place where they have called evil good and good evil. They called darkness light and light darkness. They've taken the bitter for the sweet and the sweet for the bitter. And now this nation stands at a pinnacle point of swaying over the edge into liberalism. And when it happens, it'll never come back to the other side again. We're too late. We're too far into this. My goodness, look at the Middle East. Look at the nation of Israel. Look at the nations gathering right now. There was a time in Europe when we had to worry about the Nazis. We had to worry about the Italians. We had to worry about the Japanese. Different countries. Now, those countries don't exist anymore. You don't have to worry about the Nazis. You don't have to worry about this. You don't have to worry about that. You have to worry about a nation of people that live for one thing. 
That is to kill every white infidel and Jew on this planet. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, there's more Muslims in this world that are hate, hate everything, about, everything about God and the Word of God. And I'm telling you, no, not all Muslims are that way, but I'm telling you, that's where this world was going. Let me just say it to you. When the devil had to ride Rome to get where he was in Europe, he rode Rome. And now he's riding Allah and the rest of them to get to what he wants. And he's going to pull this whole thing together. And if you know anything about the book of Daniel, you know that America is right smack dab in the middle of it when the Antichrist shows up. Oh, there's more than an election. You're looking this time, my friend, as a defining of a nation. And maybe we will slip through one more time. We might. We might. We might. We might. It may not be. It might slip through one more. But there's coming certainly the next time. Certainly in four more years with all the liberalism, with all the good being called evil, and all the filth and all the ungodliness that are taking place. Surely, when it swings... I'm telling you right now, when that pinnacle swing to the liberal side, to the humanistic side, they're already taking God out of your school. They're trying to take it off your money. They're trying to take your Bible out of your hand. They're trying to take it out of the Pledge of Allegiance. They're trying to brainwash your kids. Everything you see, everything you hear, everything you read is about one thing. Get rid of God and make us God. And I'm telling you, when it happens, it's over. And it ain't swinging back the other way. Buckle your seatbelt, brother. Worlds of fun is nothing compared to the ride we're going to get before the rapture comes. And i got to confess, I'm looking forward to it. I am. I mean, I'll tell you what, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. I think it's great. But I'm telling you right now, it's going to be blood, sweat, and tears. And that's why God's people better get their relationship with God where it needs to be. I'm going to say this, and I'm going to move on to my next one, but I could preach this the whole morning. This church age that we're living in. You go back in church history. The Waldensians, the Albigensians, the Huguenots, the Catharii, the Paulicians, the Henrysians, the, the, the Novotians, and all those groups paid a price for what they believed in that book with their blood. They were hung upside down and killed in the torture chambers of Rome and all through the Colosseum. And we, you and me, the only period of time in the history of the church, the Laodicean church, that has not paid one price for what we believe. That's why we don't believe it the way we should. But you may get your chance before the rapture comes. You may just get your chance. I read those stories back there of those Waldensian mothers put in cages. Watch as the pigs ate their little kids. As the kids screamed, Mommy and Daddy. And all oh, we don't like to hear it as Americans. We want to turn it off. But then we'll go home on television and watch all the stuff that's on there and not even phase you. They watched those little kids, but before mom and dad was killed, they watched those little baby girls, little baby boys being carried off into the convent with the nuns to be raised Roman Catholics. And, and the moms knowing that, that, that Rome was going to raise them, that they'd never hear about Jesus, that they were going to be lost. And mom and dad would not deny that book. And some of God's people can't even get up to come to church this morning. Some of God's people don't, can't even come to the place where they, they care. It's God when it's convenient. Oh, I'm telling you, you may get your chance yet. We may all get our chance. I've certainly not suffered for him. 
Oh, we all, this church period that we're living in is the most babyfied, most sissified, most not understanding of the scriptures. It's just so caught up in the lackadaisical, lethargical attitude of just playing church when they have no concept of the blood that was shed, the lives that were spent, the people on the rack with their hands cut off and their heads cut off and their tongue cut out, their eyes gouged out, just so you could not read your Bible. I'm done now. I feel better. Let's move on to the next chapter. Well, that great chapter that shows us why we're where we're at, you watch the elections, my friend. In chapter 6 through 1 through 4, great alternative. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Where chapter 5 verse 20 shows me the discrepancy and the filth that's in this world, chapter 6 verse 1 and 4 shows me how to see the glory of Almighty God in a world that has rejected God. King Uzziah said, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. You know what? I don't have time to read the whole passage today, but you know what? When Isaiah saw that and he saw God on the throne and he saw his glory, you know the first thing out of his mouth is, it wasn't, look how great we are. It wasn't, oh boy, we're doing a great job. It was, oh, woe is me. He saw how wicked he was as he fell on his face. Because that's what the glory of God does when you see Him. It shows you who He is and it sure shows you who I am and you are. Chapter 8, verses 19 and 20. Great, great passage for the Christian. Talking about all the false teachers and all the false preachers. Shows you how you can know the difference between somebody that's telling you the truth and somebody that's lying to you. He simply says this, to the law and to the testimony... If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. You see, back in that time in the Old Testament, in spite of what the scholars said, God had an absolute standard that somebody in the Old Testament could judge whether somebody was telling the truth or not when they said, open your Bibles and turn to. Yeah. Chapter 28, verses 9 through 13. Great chapter on how to learn the Bible, how to study the Bible, how to build it into your life. He talks about precepts. He talks about knowledge. He's about doctrine. He talks about line upon line, precept upon precept. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about you being a wise master builder as you build into your life everything that God wants you to have and everything God wants you to be. There's a system. It's the same system we use to teach you the Bible, starting with the basics, building on it. That's what part of this program is. It's we've already laid the foundation. Now we're building line upon line, book by book, giving you an understanding of the Word of God. Chapter 30. One through three. Woe to the rebellious children, saith the Lord. Historically, it's the nation of Israel. Inspirationally, it's any young man or young lady that rebels against the authority of the Word of God. Or any Christian that rebels against the authority of the Word of God. Chapter 40, verses 15, 16, and 17. Talks about the nations on earth, Gentile nations, our nation, all the nations on this planet. And show you that they mean absolutely nothing to God other than how they relate to the nation of Israel. You know, last week I gave you a great truth. And I was sorry some of you were here to, not here to miss it because if there's any book you needed to hear as a young Christian, it needed to be the Song of Solomon in the right way of laying out the hell. But I gave you one great truth that if you forget everything else I said, I hope you got this truth. And that was when you read the book of Song of Solomon, you come away with the idea that the only thing on Christ's mind was his bride. The only thing on Christ's mind is his church. 
his bride. And he waits for her with anticipation. Song of Solomon chapter 2, Song of Solomon chapter 1. We went through it last week. And all he wants and all he thinks about and all he sees and all that dwells on his mind is you. And we ought to reciprocate by thinking the same thing toward him. But you know what? There's another aspect of that. Just as the bride is the only thing that's on Christ's mind, the nation of Israel is the only thing that's on God's mind. What the nation of Israel is to, or what the church is to Christ, his bride, the nation of Israel is to God, Hosea chapter 4, God's wife. And God has one thing on his mind, that is to establish the nation of Israel back in the land. And Christ has one thing on his mind, it's the body of Christ loving him and getting ready for that grand, glorious, eternal honeymoon that we're going to spend with him through all of eternity. It's as simple as that. Christ has a bride, God has a wife. And when you study the Bible, it's simple. I told you when we started. Kingdom of God versus the kingdom of heaven. The bride of Christ, kingdom of God. The nation of Israel, kingdom of heaven. It's as simple as that. Christ and the bride. A Christ and God. One has a bride, one has a wife. And just as the, bride of, the, the bridegroom longs for his, his bride, God Almighty longs for the nation of Israel to be back where God wants them to be. And it's an incredible and chapter 40 lays that out so incredibly well to understand it. Chapter 53, what can I say? The whole chapter. If you don't know this one, you need to start here before you ever do anything else in your Bible. Greatest chapter in the Bible, the crucifixion of Christ. What can I say? Martin Luther said that the words of Isaiah chapter 53 ought to be studded in diamonds on black velvet. Every verse, every verse tells you of the suffering of Christ on the cross and how he was thinking of you and how much he loved you and the price that he paid for your salvation. Only one of many in the Old Testament, but is paramount for you to understand and see it for what it is. Isaiah 55 verses 1 through 13. Oh, three great things here. First of all, it talks about the investment of your life. He talks about, simply says this, Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread? Great concept. We live in a world, Christ is fast approaching. God has given us a mandate. Our lives and everything we have, God has given us to be stewards for one thing, that we can accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. And yet, most of us are doing our own thing versus what God wants us to do. Verse 8, His thoughts are not your thoughts. His ways are not my ways. Verse 11, The Word of God never returns void. Three great concepts. Three great concepts. And then in Isaiah chapter 66, you have this great verse. He says this, He that killeth an ox as if he had slew a man. He that sacrificeth a lamb, as if he cut off a dog's neck. He that offereth an oblation, as if he offered swine's blood. He that burneth incense, as if he blessed an idol. Yea, they have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abomination. Another picture of exactly what we've got in 20th century, modern day America, and around this world. Losing the value system. A man looking at an ox, and, and judging somebody killing an ox, like somebody just slew a man. I've told you before, around this world, we've got people that are lost without Christ that are dying and going to hell. And in this country, we spend more money on saving whales stuck in the, in the Alaska waterways than we do reaching the gospel around this world. I'll dare and say that most of God's people, when they get home to the judgment seat of Christ, will have spent more money for dog food all their lives than they did putting out the gospel. That's just the way that it is. We do not see the importance of the things of God anymore. We equate it just the opposite. The things in the world now are more important than the things of God. We, offer, we look at offering oblation, and we look like it's somebody just offering swine's blood. We talk about uh, offering something to God, and it's like going to an idol. We don't have the attitude of heart, nor do we understand. We have chosen our own ways, and our soul delights in the abomination. That's the way it is in this America. And I told you, I'm telling you, that's where we're at today in this country. Well... 
Lastly, I want to give you this, and I've got a few minutes left here. We're in good time this morning. Let me show you probably the most incredible thing about this Bible and this book and this Bible. Now, I don't know if you know it or not, but down through the history of the church, there's been forgeries that have been tried to be smuggled into the Word of God. There's people today that tell me, tell, will tell you that your King James Bible is not complete, that there should be 12 or 14 more books that should be added to that. And you will find, if you go into uh, anywhere on the Internet, you'll find all kinds of material on the lost books of the Bible, the book of Jasher, you know, the book of Enoch, and all those things, you know. And you'll find many, many people that will stand in line to tell you that your Bible is not complete, that you don't have all the books of the Bible the way that God wanted you to have. And that's why they want to tell you that because they found these books, they have extra information that you don't have. So for a small fee of $250,000, you know, they'll teach you everything you want to know about the Bible. And, of course, we know the Bible is, is set. And the way we know that it's said is two ways. There's a place in Matthew that tells you very clearly that the order of the books of the canon and scripture are all they are. And then there's here. I'm going to show you one of the most amazing things about the Bible that the average person never sees because the average person doesn't believe the Bible anymore. Now, I'm not talking about you folks here because maybe to some of you here, you know, that have been coming for a while and you're just learning the Bible and you never saw it. But I'm saying, this is what the Bible is all about. Now, I don't know if you have ever seen this or not, but... Uh, Isaiah is a miniature Bible within your Bible. There are 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah, and yet there are 66 books in your Bible. If you go to Genesis chapter 1, which is the first book in your Bible, you'll find the Bible says, heavens and the earth. You go to Isaiah chapter 1, which in our little mini Bible will match up to Genesis chapter 1, you'll find the heavens and the earth. You know there's 39 books in the Old Testament. 39 books starting with Genesis and run up to uh, the book of Malachi. 39 books in the Old Testament and then there's a split. That split is so obvious because the Old Testament deals with one thing and then the New Testament begins to deal with Christ. You know when you can go through the book of Isaiah, it has 66 chapters. You know when you get to the 39th book in the book of, in the old te- uh, in the book of Isaiah, you know there's a split. You know when you start the 40th book in Isaiah, it suddenly starts to talk about Christ. You know, the scholars see the split so much after the 39th book. You know what they teach? And I've got, you can get on the internet and find this anytime. You can get any book, any book at all. I mean, you'll, on Isaiah. You know what they say? The scholars see the split so much and don't know what to do with it because they don't believe the Bible. They say two different Isaiahs wrote the book of Isaiah. They teach what they call Deutero-Isaiah. They say one Isaiah wrote the first 39 books, <laughs> then another Isaiah wrote the rest of the books. You know why they say that? Because they're too educated beyond their intelligence and they can't just read what they believe and believe what they read. And so they got to come up with a Deutero-Isaiah. Well, you don't have to come up with a Deutero-Isaiah. Hey, that book of Isaiah is a picture of your Bible. It's showing you that there's only 66 books in your Bible. Chapter 1 matches up with Isaiah chapter 1, heavens and the earth. There's 39 books in the Old Testament, then it splits. There's 39 chapters in Isaiah, then it splits. And you know what happens after the split in the 40? It starts to talk about Christ. You know, the 40th book in your Bible is Matthew. You know what Matthew says? It says, the voice, one crying in the wilderness. Isaiah is the 40th chapter, matches up to the 40th book. You know what it says in Isaiah chapter 40? The voice of one crying in the wilderness. The last book in your Bible is the book of Revelation. That's the 66th book. And when you come to the 66th book, at the end of that book, you find the new heavens and the new earth. The last chapter in the book of Isaiah is 66, matches the last book of the Bible, Revelation. You know what you find in the last chapter of Isaiah, chapter 66 and verse 22? You guessed it, new heavens and a new earth. What a book you got. 
You see, God fixed that so that when somebody told you there was more books in your Bible and you didn't have them all and you had to listen to them and pay attention to them, God gave you an absolute infallible book that you could go to and God would say, uh-uh, there are 66 books. Let me show you the mini Bible within the Bible in the book of Isaiah. 66 chapters, 66 books. Chapter 1, New Heaven and New Earth, first book in your Bible, New Heaven and New Earth, 39 chapters, split, 39th book, split, 40th thing, voice of one crying in the wilderness, 40th book, fourth of one crying in the end of the book, New Heaven and New Earth, end of the chapter of the Bible, New Heaven and New Earth. Everything in its right place with a right split in the middle. And let me tell you something, there's only one person in the world that could do that, and that is God. When that thing was written in Isaiah, nobody on the face of this planet knew there were going to be 66 books. The New Testament wasn't even written yet. God's Holy Spirit knew it was. That's why the Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you got some book. And I'm telling you this, and I'm done. I'm even done early today, but I'm done. Now that I'm going to tell you this, I won't be done early, but I would have been done early if I wouldn't have told you this. I'm going to tell you something, my dear people, and I love you with all of my heart. I do, I do, I do, I do. And I am so happy in these last days before Jesus comes back that God allowed us to be back together to do a work for him. I thank God for every man and every woman God's brought into our midst. We've got some 20 people that aren't even here today. Uh, we've just, we've, we've just, God has been so good to us. But we need to stay focused on what we need to do. We can't lose our edge in these last days. And I know it's easy to. I know we all have our own personal struggles. I know I do. I know we all have our, our own our jobs and all things and our families and all those things. I do. We all know that. We all understand that. But I'm telling you, we've got to hold the line. We have got to stay firm on what these... He's coming. My goodness, just look around this country. Just look around this world. He is coming. And when he comes, my friend, we need to be found faithful. We need to be down in those trenches in that foxhole holding out. We need to put our own personal things aside. We need to reach out to people and tell them we love them. And I'm telling you, it's not an easy thing to do today because nobody wants anything to do with God the right way. Well, I told you all these stories today. Let me tell you something. I'll tell you the bottom line. A hundred years ago, if you didn't believe this book and didn't hold this book true, you were a heretic. Now today, just a hundred short years later, if you believe this Bible is the Word of God, you're the heretic and the whole thing's turned around. You know what? You know what's happened? They've called evil good and good evil. The light's turned into darkness and the darkness has turned into light. And the average person who goes around flaunting those Bibles don't even know that they've taken God out, put the devil in, and taken out all the verses that deal with the blood, taken out all the verses that deal with his begotten, taken out all the verses that deal with his glory and, his, and who he was, and just try to pass him off like some new age concept of everything that this old world's going to. You know what? We got to hold the line. We got to pray God bring his people that'll shoulder with us that'll hold the line. I'm not looking to build a big church. I'm just looking to build whatever God gives us that believe a book and stands fast. In a lot of ways, yeah, we're out there to reach the world, and we're going to do everything we can. But another way, we're in a little lifeboat in this great sea of this old world beating on one side or the other. And you know what? We got to hang on to each other in these last days. There ain't any room for any division, there ain't any room for any anger, there ain't any room for any pettiness. We got what we got because God gave it to us, and you know as well as I do, the devil will come after it. And the only thing, I said it when we started, the, only, the, strong, this, the this church will only be as strong as the weakest person in it when it comes to holding the line 
together with the Word of God. That's why we'll do whatever we got to do. I'll do whatever I got to do to help you learn that book because that's where the strength of this work is going to lie. So I hope you enjoyed the book of Isaiah. Let's ask God's blessing. And Thursday night, keep working for the, keep working for the, uh, uh, our children's thing. We're looking to reach some parents there, and that's what it's all about. And everybody just keep praying for God. Keep blessing us. We thank you for being here today. Again, thank you for our visitors. We love you. You're always welcome to come back. But let's ask God today just to bless us and take this message today and challenge our hearts. Father.